Hello and welcome to the King Hero IndyCar Podcast with Kirby and Justin. Kirby, how are you? Uh, doing well, Justin. Spring is here, starting to feel a little better about life and uh, and doing well. Thank you. You are welcome. Um, we have been kind of silent as of late, um, so now we're going to just pump out the content, Kirby. Oh, oh, oh goody. Um, as far as uh, this new initiative for <laughs> pumping out content goes, um, we're going to start with an interview with uh, Mr. Rick Schaefer. Now, I would venture to say that most people that listen to us do not know who Rick Schaefer is. I didn't know who Rick Schaefer was. Um, but Rick Schaefer is one of these guys that's been around the sport for a very long time. Uh, had a lot of different interesting uh, positions and has now uh, penned a book, uh, 500 on the Indy 500, uh, which Curb, you and I read and thought was a pretty good read. Uh, I was definitely impressed. Uh, a lot of these books are pretty uh, uh, generic and, and kind of telling you things you already know, but that was not the case here. It was full of uh, tidbits and facts that either I didn't know or had forgotten Combined with some great photographs in the book, it's really a, a, an easy read, easy to pick up, put down, pick up again. Uh, very enjoyable. So without further ado, a uh, quick mention of our sponsors, uh, Neologic Beer, can't get any more environmental Neologic, South Street Diner, Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, and without further ado, uh, interview with uh, Rick Schaefer. Uh, we're here with uh, Rick Schaefer who has a rather interesting bio, uh, writer for the Indianapolis Star, a PR guy for numerous people, uh, Bettenhausen Motorsports, Champ Car, among others, uh, has penned several books about CART and the 500 and has worked at NBC. So uh, without further ado, Rick, uh, thanks for uh, taking the time to uh, to meet with Kirby and I. Thank you for having me on. You do have a fascinating work history, Rick. I mean, uh, and we'll dig into that a little bit. And uh, you have recently written a book. Uh, entitled 500 on the Indy 500, Tales, Facts, and Figures on the Greatest Race in the World. Congratulations on uh, on that book. Well, thank you. And uh, I, I, it was nice to hear that I had written several books. Actually, I've written three racing books. So I guess three counts as several. So. You know, I guess I'll start off, um, Rick, uh, reading through your bio, one of the things that just jumped out to me, you worked with a certain Mr. Robin Miller. Um, who we interviewed not too long uh, ago here. And I think I can speak for Kirby and I. Uh, Robin's a bit of an enigma to us. And uh, I'm hoping that uh, the fact that you worked with him, you can uh, clarify uh, for us uh, what Robin's all about. Well, I'll tell you what. I not only worked with him, uh, he went to Southport High School where I, I wasn't – and he's, he's uh, three years ahead of me in school – I have an older brother who was four years ahead of me, and one day he brought Robin home to uh, play basketball. We had a uh, uh, Robin quickly became a fixture in the Schaefer family, so uh, you know he's been more than just a coworker. He's been a very good friend, and uh, so you know, goodness, we've been friends for well over fifty years. You know Robin as well as anybody would knows Robin, I would suppose. I mean, uh, well, you know, after fifty years, I'd like to think so. Yeah, uh, yeah. And again, of course, I did have the opportunity uh, when I worked at the Star for seven years. Uh, my desk was right next to his. So, was... Kirby, can you imagine a time when a local newspaper had two people working on racing? <laughs> two. 
I mean, it's almost unthinkable now, isn't it? Well, back then, Rick, I'd imagine you had more than that, didn't you? Uh, 70s, 80s, and 90s? What happened was uh, when I started at the Star, the, the longtime sports editor, Bob Collins, was having some serious health problems. He was actually looking to have a, a liver transplant. And Robin got elevated to the assistant sports editor's job because the gentleman who had that job, John Banch, wanted to do the uh, Colts beat. So, you know, you kind of had all this movement around. Well, Robin, when he hired me, he didn't tell me. I thought I was going to just be a, a copy editor, you know, so I edit stories and write headlines. And, and he said, you know, Shafe, you'll get to, to work with the, the guys uh, at the Speedway during the month of May. And I was fine with that, but uh, after the 1987 500, I find myself scheduled to go to cover the cart race in Cleveland. And I said, Robin, what are you doing? And he said, Shafe, I don't have time to travel anymore. I got to run the, the newspaper to, in a sense, put me on the map. So suddenly, you know, people were interested in what whoever works for the Star has to say. So, I, you know, the Indianapolis Star was probably the paper of record. Uh, for the country back in those days, wasn't it, for racing? Well, absolutely. And, of course, in, in those days, we also had the news. You know, it, it was yeah. kind of an interesting situation. We're, we're owned by the same people, but we're competitors. The two Indianapolis papers covered the entire IndyCar circuit. We were probably the only daily newspaper, and the, as well as the news, that, that covered the, the entire circuit. Of course, that seems to be a thing of the past, so, sadly. Well, I, I would, you know, I think to possibly – Justin and myself that the late 80s and early 90s were kind of a golden period for cart uh, the cart series so that must have been a really you know interesting and fun time to be involved well absolutely and you know the thing is uh, 93 when Nigel Mansell he's the biggest name in motorsport and he decides to do a year of of, of IndyCar racing the response was incredible because they had to expand every media center to accommodate all the extra international press who were there to cover old Nige. And then suddenly we're hearing that, uh, you know, IndyCar's in trouble, and that's why the IRL had to start. I mean, it, was just, it, was, it couldn't have happened at a worse time. It was just, you know, this, this thing was really peaking. And, you know, you had big-name sponsors, big-name uh, uh, manufacturers involved. Of course, you had big-name drivers. So, I mean, it, was, it certainly wasn't anything wrong in the series that I could see. But for you, I mean, that must have been a great time to to uh, be involved and to, as you say, put your your name on the map and to uh, meet a lot of people. And um, well, when you know, I start out my life I'm a, as a fan, and you know, I'm a, a kid, and I'm, I'm I get to go to my first 564, and then the following year, uh, my brother and I got to accompany our with a neighbor who was one of the safety patrolmen, and he happened to be stationed at Tower Terrace behind the pits. So he had us go with him one day. I think it was the third day of qualifying for the 65 race. And uh, this is our first chance to get to go down to the fence and get autographs from the drivers and talk to them. And, I mean, that was a a major thrill. And you grow up and, uh, you know, you get a college degree in something. And and, then before I knew it, I was, you know, writing stories about it. And and, uh, so it it, kind of took my uh, interest into a different level. Shall I use the term heady to to be on first-name basis with somebody like Mario Andretti or Emerson Fittipaldi or, or the answers. So, I mean, first of all, I want to congratulate you on the book, Rick. I think um, it's really, it was, you know, I enjoy any book about uh, the IndyCar series and, and the 500, but I got to say that it exceeded my expectations. A lot of times these kind of books are kind of whitewashed um, histories of, 
of whatever they're covering. I think you struck a really good balance between making sure that you told things the way they were while still being respectful of everybody involved. Well, thank you very much. And uh, it was a fun project. I mean, that's the thing. It wasn't just the writing. Uh, for me, the research is a lot of fun. It's as much fun as anything. So. I mean, what was the uh, inspiration or the idea that, that made you want to write this book? Well, I always have enjoyed when a, a sports writer would cover a, a sporting event. Of course, you'd have the main story, but invariably they'd have him do a notebook. And these would be five or six items that would be hopefully of interest to the reader and would be connected to the event, but they wouldn't necessarily fit in with the main story. So in a sense, this is a uh, gigantic notebook on the 500. Now, I've done a, a short report on each of the 104 500s. Uh, some are one paragraph, some are several paragraphs, but I, I just thought this would be kind of a neat way to do it. And, and when you're reading about the race, you can you can follow it chronologically. But this book allows you, if you want to, just flip a few pages ahead and find a you know a number or maybe a headline that intrigues you and read and see what that is. And I think that's that was part of my thing is I wanted to make it as much fun for the reader as it was for me, the writer, to to put it together. Brown, I'll admit, I went to the back first and and read through uh you know the 70s 80s and this book allows you to do that without really feeling like you're cheating or not not being faithful the way the book's presented go from page one on or you do it like you did so it's... yeah but it's still not just a recitation of facts either it one kind of flows into the next which is what i appreciated about it i thought is that uh one is what you know often does there's a little bit of a segue into the next one and i thought the book flowed really well that way well, I appreciate that because that's something in any story I've always tried to write, to, you know, get the thing to flow. And uh, I, You know, we all think we remember everything correctly. And you go back and read the – I would think I remember pretty much how things happened. And and uh, amazingly, I wasn't correct. You know, I was reminding people the way things really were. I mean, you think of Roger Penske, for example, as somebody who's – everything's always perfect. Everything's always consistent with everything he does. And, you know, I remember – Penske building his own cars and bringing them to the track and, and that type of thing. But you forget, or you maybe never realized as a youngster, like in the seventies, he's coming to the track with, and even the eighties, he's coming to the track with three or four different chassis and engine combinations. It's, it's just interesting to go back and see how these guys would bring multiple generations of cars and engines and, and uh, stuff to the track. And this car, this book just does a great job of bringing that stuff back to life. Well, I, I thought it was telling that in 1969, when Penske came here for the first time, uh, he had such a reputation. And of course, Mark Donahue qualified fourth. He's a rookie, but uh, he was such a highly thought of driver in, in a very short period of time. As a matter of fact, uh, 1966, you were just starting to hear about this guy. And that's when he started driving for Roger. And uh, here is teams in his fourth year. And they're one of the heavy favorites to win that year's 500. So, I mean, it's just, you know, that's just kind of reputation that Roger developed from the get-go. Rick, uh, going off the book for a second, kind of back to your, your work experience, uh, another thing that jumped out at me, um, because I'm a big fan of Top Gear and the Grand Tour, is that you worked with Ben Collins, a.k.a. The Stig. The Stig, yes. Uh, yeah. And do you watch, have you watched any of those shows? Uh, you know, are you familiar with what his work is the Stig? Absolutely. Uh, he was just a terrific young man to deal with. We just really clicked. Uh, this was my first year away from uh, the Bettenhausen team. They, they lost their sponsor, so I got laid off. But I found work with uh, my former driver at Bettenhausen, Stephanie Johansson, 
and he's got these two rookie drivers for the Indy Light Series. One's named Scott Dixon, and the other's Ben Collins. Of course, Scott, you know, had has had an incredible career, obviously, but Scott has always been a very quiet person, and you know, he and I got along fine. But Ben just had a lot more outgoing personality, so we we kind of hit it off well. But uh, it was neat to to see him you know, get some kind of a neat opportunity. Like, I'm sorry, never got to, to come to Indy cars full-time after having a pretty decent year in, in lights. But uh, it was one of the few times I've impressed uh, my nephews. Uh, I, I asked one of you ever watched the, the Top Gear program, and and he, he said he did. And I said, you know, I'm friends with the Stig. And it was like, for a moment, his jaw dropped. And <laughs> So yeah, to, that's impressive. He also uh, wrote you know, a, he also wrote a couple of books, uh, Ben. And I, I I've read two of them actually, of, of all things. Um, he, he wrote uh, the Man in the White Suit, and I think the other one, uh, uh, How to Drive, I believe it was called. But um, he's I, I, you know he's actually had a very interesting career, and it seems like he was quite an accomplished driver. And I didn't know if you were able to see that in your time with him there or not. Well, I didn't get to spend a lot of time with him, uh, but uh, I'm not surprised. I mean, he just had a very professional attitude, and, you know, he, he had a varied career. I mean, he was in uh, sports cars, you know, big races like Le Mans. He had a, then he actually did a short stint, and uh, uh, they tried to do a NASCAR-type series at England using that Rockingham track that we had the uh, kart races on in uh, 2001. A lot of those guys, they just, you know, they race a lot, and, uh, you know, by the time they get into the big leagues, you know, it, it, it shouldn't surprise you because, you know, they've trained well. Racing's just so there's so many people that, you know, could have been this or could have been that, it seems like. It's just the nature of the game. Well, a, a classic example, uh, through my TV work, I became good friends with uh, Jan Bikas. And Jan Bikas was, you know, a driver on the way up. He was the Indy Lights champion. And, you know, well-spoken, nice-looking guy. Uh, you would have thought this guy's, you know, got it made. Well, it just so happened when he won the championship, there just wasn't a lot of rides open. In fact, there were no good rides open. So he kind of struggled with uh, some mid-level teams and, and then ultimately decided to uh, uh, try a broadcasting career, which he's done very well in. So, But that's just that you, you do have good drivers like that that kind of get lost in the, in the shuffle. Well, unfortunately for Jan, he's kind of getting lost in the shuffle again, isn't he? Uh, most of the people I worked with at NBC are at NBC anymore anyway. So. I always thought Jan Bikas did a really good job. I was disappointed when he dropped off the telecast. Uh, you know, the the guy that was the producer that was kind of helping him along, he's, he's no longer with NBC Sports. So. Well, uh, you know, the sad thing is, I know he worked with this group for 10 years. Uh, Terry Langner was the producer, and then the executive producer was Rich O'Connor. And these two guys, they just, they, they got it. And they, they worked very hard to build a team of people that worked together well. You know, neither one of them is connected to NBC's coverage of the, of the, the indie series anymore. Since you mentioned NBC and your time there at NBC, I have to ask you this question. Kirby and I, and I think particularly me, are uh, both fans of Paul Tracy. You know, we've always kind of had this suspicion about him as, as far as what his true personality is like. And... Uh, I know you were stage manager at the time, and I was just wondering if you could uh, share any impressions you had of, of PT. Well, you know, he does his job a little differently than, than say, a, a Jan Bikas, who was, was really into, you know, prep ahead of time. Not, not and, exactly and yet, thorough, right. 
<laughs> well, I don't want to say thorough, but I mean, Paul, the thing is, he's he's a sharp person, and uh, you know, he's had the advantage that it's not been that long ago that he drove any cars. He's not afraid to to say what he thinks, and you know, sometimes he and, and Townsend don't agree on things, but what, that makes it, you know, it's not a, it's not like it used to be with Bobby Unser, you know, going after Sam Posey all the time because Sam would come up with these rather interesting observations, and you know, Bobby would say, "Oh, Sam, that's not the way it is," you know, they they didn't have that kind of relationship, but uh, Townsend Bell is just, I, I'm I'm not surprised he's done as well as he's done, and uh, it's just kind of an interesting balance between the. Yeah, it's a little more straightforward in his approach, and and then, you know, Paul's just uh, he's just you know he he's got his ideas on things, and and but the thing is, you look at what he did in his career, and I you know that allow to me it makes him back it up because he you know you, you look at what he's accomplished. Here's a guy that was battling Nigel Mansell when Mansell was you know the rage here. He's always just been an incredible driver, and and uh, he was certainly a talent. So. No question. Um, and, and entertaining, right? And I think, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, that's I, I so I think he brings a lot to that telecast. There's a lot of people uh, that say kind of negative things about Paul and, and him on NBC. But I, I think he's great. Uh, I think he's great. Yeah, yeah he exactly. plays off of Townsend very well. They, they really work well together, I think. So how, how did you enjoy your time at NBC? That's a, a bit of a departure from what you were doing, you know, the first part of your career. Was that a, a fun change for you? Well, it was obviously a learning experience, and, and of course, it wasn't always NBC. It started out as Versus, and oh, okay. uh, but the nice thing was it got me back onto the circuit where I'm getting to travel to a lot of places I used to go to, and then you know was no longer able to go to. Paid nicely. I I, I can't thank Terry Lehner enough for you know letting me do that job. And of course, I wasn't always a stage manager. I ended up being a just a out out statistician and and uh, researcher, but I love doing that and. Uh, so, so as as a researcher statistician, can you kind of describe for us what that role is? I mean, are you feeding information into the earphones of these guys during a race, or how does that work? Actually, in the booth, when I was stage manager, I would occasionally give them a note, but they have an outstanding researcher named Russ Thompson. He's got an unbelievable data bank in his computer. Of course, he's smart enough to know what's going on to know where to look for stuff. So, you know, they would give me different jobs to do. And I, I would also, before every race, I would do like pre-race prep notes and what I thought was going to be important about this race and this person and whatnot. So. When I look over your uh, bio and so forth, I, 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 the one job that just really jumps out at me and I just I, I think it's so interesting. And I need to ask you this question. You were the PR rep for Champ Car in 2007, 2008, which were the were the dying days of of cart. I, that had to be just a most fascinating and also maybe uh, trying position, I would think, at that time. You know, I, my job involved a lot of writing, and, and uh, it was an eight month stint. Quite frankly, I was there for the last eight months of Champ Car, so. I, I wish I could have gotten there sooner. It was, you know, it was a nice job, and it, it kind of kept me going in the in the sport. So, you know, that's just it. It's people have short memories. Of, uh, what have you done for me lately? If you're, if you're not around, that you know, you can get forgotten quite quickly. So, was there a, a a feeling you were on a sinking ship during that time, or what was what was the atmosphere like? Well, it my memory is that it came around rather abruptly. So, uh, I. I think everybody thought that, you know, even though the cars were different, the, the champion, the champ car teams were going to Indy again. So, you know, you're starting to see the the, the crossover. I, I like that they had the big picture of the reunification and all the people that got jobs that got to 
have jobs waiting for them, and they didn't have us in the picture. So there was about <laughs> 40 or 50 people that got cut out. Uh, we didn't think it was such a good – I mean, it was good for the sport, obviously. I'm not knocking that, but it's too bad they couldn't help the rest of us. So. It's just, as you referred to, it's such a shame that the whole thing happened that way in the first place. And uh, it's just – and it did. Curb, do, do you call that being pretty abrupt? Like it all just kind of happened, and you know, from an outsider standpoint, a matter of a couple few weeks. I seem to remember it kind of trending that way for a while. I don't. It seemed like they were always on again, off again. Stories about reunification on some level, whether it was Tony George was going to buy the series, or or uh, Tony George was trying to, you know, win the series out of bankruptcy court or whatever. It, it seemed to me like it was a, a long, slow, inevitable. Uh, result but i don't well i should remember it more because as you may remember curb i did apply for the ceo job at uh, uh cart at one I point i don't think you ever shared that with me no it must have been a secret ambition of yours <laughs> no I, I actually did I, I put in the whole resume took a you know made a call but the uh, shock of all shocks they didn't uh they didn't hire me so uh chris just chris, think you would have been one of many well, I think I could have done as good as, as some of the bozos they had there. So I, I think I could have done at least that well. The cart shot itself in the foot. I mean, you know, there were rumblings about the about Tony George being courted by uh, certain people in other series. I won't mention any names. They wanted to hurt Indy Car Racing. Uh, not just cart, but the, the 500. And uh, if cart owners had not sold their old cars to the startup IRL teams in 1996, they would have probably not gone anywhere. You know, they, they, they can't have eight cars in the 500. And, and uh, really, for for the rest of the season, though, it, you know, that Disney World race would have never got off the ground with just a handful of cars. And, and yet, it was they were only too happy to give them their old equipment they wanted to get rid of. And it's like, well, yeah, but and since you're giving them ammunition, they're going to shoot back at you. So, you know, I thought that was not one of Kurt's better moments in its history. Didn't take it seriously enough, if I remember correctly. You know, it, it got their attention when they did the 25-8 rule for first 96 in qualifying. and uh, uh, it, But the thing was, the product wasn't good. And, you know, that first all-IRL car with the, the four-liter production-based engine that was, I guess, so loud it hurt people's ears. Uh, you know, the cars were not anywhere near as sophisticated. It was... Uh, it just, I don't know, it, it didn't have to happen. That's a, that's a sad thing. But it could have been avoided. I think in a recent mailbag, uh, Robin Miller listed you as a, one of three possibilities to replace Donald Davidson at the, uh, as the official historian of IndyCar and, uh, or whatever his title is. So I'm not sure what they're going to do with that, to be honest with you. I, I, uh, I got to be realistic. I'm 68 years old, and, and I don't know if you want to hire somebody that age to you know, take over for somebody. Obviously, Donald's older, but Donald created such a niche for himself. I mean, there's there's nobody who's going to take his place, in a sense, and, and nobody is going to ever know as much as he did. He's, I don't think there's an equivalent to him in uh, any other sport. It's kind of a unique position, but, it, you know, it would certainly be neat to, to get to do that. Yeah. Well, I, I was I was going to ask you about that, but, but first, uh, how much of this stuff did you, you know, generally speaking, pretty much know about, and how much of it did you have to research and find out learn about for the first time yourself? Well, when I was doing, uh, you know, kind of getting the thing in place, uh, what I did was I looked at box scores, and, and I'd look down at it, and I'd think, you know, now this is an interesting, you know, something would pique my interest looking at it. You know, just for exa- great examples, 1911, uh, you got the First Brother Act, the Endicott's, Bill and Harry. Well, I, I really had never 
as big of a fan as I was, I never really sat down and looked at, you know, the 1911 box score to see you know, who was who and kind of the cars that there were, all the manufacturers involved. So, you know, that started giving me ideas. But what I wanted to really try to do is just put stuff that wasn't normally in the books you would read. I've read a lot of books on the 500 in my lifetime, and I not only wanted to have stories that weren't, uh, you know, all that well-known, I wanted to have pictures that, you know, had not been published a lot or at all, so... Well, they, the pictures add a lot to it. They really, uh, there's a lot of great photos in there, that and and plenty of others from not only recent times with, you know, the color pictures, but lots of great pictures from the early days. Well, you know, the Speedway is a treasure trove. So in, in writing a book like this, um, how much help was the, the series and the Speedway, or were they interested in helping you get this out, or were they just um, just simply responding to requests, or how did that work? Well, the only people I really worked with, you know, to to get help with the photographers, because you know the information was there. You didn't have to go to them to you know to bother people. By and large, I guess you could say I kind of sprung this book on them. I don't, as far as the organizations, I did I didn't even bother them. I mean, they, you know, they're too busy doing their own thing. So. Okay. Well, you you've read this book now though, and it's it's really a fantastic book. Have you received any feedback from anybody at the Speedway or the organization? I mean. I would think they'd be thrilled to death that somebody took the time to write this book. You know, it's it's. I, I think if I wrote the uh, you know tell all thing and, and you know all the, showed all the skeletons in the closet, I probably wouldn't be welcome. But uh, I think I you know handled it on a very positive plane that I I think it is welcome. I mean I've you know hopefully we'll be able to sell it at, at the Speedway's gift shop. That'd be a great you know matching of uh, people who like 500 and and here's a book for you. So. Absolutely. I, well, I think they, uh, I think, again, it's a great book and uh, I would think they would just be very supportive of it. I, I, you know, I can only imagine they would be, but uh, stranger things have happened. My first book I did was the, the History of the Cart series and it was done by the, the British people who do the auto course yearbooks. And then several years later, Donald Davidson very kindly invited me to help him do half of the auto course History of the 500. That was a case where the publisher was a full-fledged partner with the Speedway. You had different people running, you know, the track, the Photoshop, whatnot. And I was, I was just appalled at the way they treated their so-called partner. I mean, at least these people were gone, so, I, you know, I'm not going to step on any toes. But I'd like to think, you know, Roger Penske uh, obviously is very successful in the way he's done business aside from racing. Have you uh, sent a signed copy to uh, the captain? Yes, I have. There you Ironically, go. Just, I just, I just, uh, he's not in town. Actually, had a copy for him and, and for Doug Bowles. And uh, yeah, I, I wanted them to see it. But, Absolutely. You know, obviously, everybody was enthused that Roger Penske was the person to buy the Speedway from the, the George family or the Holman George family. You know, I think there were good feelings all around, even from the, the family itself. Um, but during this pandemic, um, you know, it's a thousand times over. They've been praising and been thankful that Penske owned the Speedway during this crisis and not the uh, Holman George family. And the implication is that the Holman George family would not have been able to keep the series going uh, through all the troubles and tribulations last year. Do you think that's true? And and I'm really curious to know if there's any hard feelings on the part of the Holman George family about that kind of implication. Well, I'm not really privy to what they, you know, they feel, uh, uh, you know, we won't know. We, we obviously have something. We won't know what would have happened had there not been the change of ownership. This place has been very blessed to always have the owners they've had when they've had them. 
you know, the four men that started the track out, the first weekend of, of car racing was a disaster. They had five people get killed. The media, you can imagine how the media responded. They they wanted them to shut the track down. They wanted racing to be banned. And these four guys had too much invested in the project to just quit after three events. And, uh, you know, then Eddie Rickenbacker comes along right before the Depression. And, and you know, he did some very good things during those years and those were very important years obviously with, with what was going on in the country you know economically tony holman saves the place from getting bulldozed under and becoming a housing development if you look at the pictures of uh, when they were doing the tours and how everything was all rotted and falling in the buildings were falling in themselves you had all the weeds and the trees and then you look at what the place has become i mean that's just you know that's all tony holman's doing and, and of course tony holman was very good at, at hiring good people and, and the guy the key guy was joe cloture and that, that they're the reason the place became what it became but now you know it was good to change hands and they couldn't have put it in a better person than uh, roger pinsky i mean he's he's just shaped the entire sport of motorsport and made it more professional so you see it with the pandemic this past year but i think you know we're going to start seeing some really exciting good things happening thanks to him and his people who work for him. You mentioned Eddie Rickenbacker, and uh, that was one of the stories I remember from your book where um, one of the first things he did was put a golf course in the infield. Yeah, it's and, one of the great ironies uh, of the track is that, first of all, most people think of Eddie Rickenbacker as the great World War One ace of aces. And a lot of people, unless you're really into you know, the history of racing, don't realize he was actually a, a first-rate IndyCar driver and uh, didn't even know how to fly an airplane until America entered World War One, and he joined the Army, learned how to fly. So after World War One, he's a bigger figure in aviation than he had been in motorsport. Of course, the story is he came to Indianapolis to buy a business and went to uh, Allison's, you know, the, the original plan is on Main Street, it's, and Allison told him, you know, he'd start this business up for his kids, but he said, you might talk to Carl Fisher because... He's uh, in desperate need of money. He might be willing to sell the Speedway. So uh, Fisher, of course, was developing Miami Beach, Florida, and had just about gotten wiped out by a hurricane. So he was something like three-quarters of a million dollars in debt. So Eddie got partners together and offered him three-quarters of a million dollars. So that's how it changed hands. But uh, they were looking at putting a golf course, and they suggested this might be a nice extra revenue maker for the track. So that's what he did. Was his first major improvement was air. That was the golf course. And of course, it was. Just, I always thought that was funny. That here's this great aviator. Now he turns the aviation facilities into a golf course. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. They, for for a while, they had a PGA tournament there, the 500 Open. And I actually have a little story about that. One year, uh, Jack Nicklaus said, "Why couldn't they have the race some other time? Because the noise is interfering with the golf tournament. Like the golf tournament was bigger than <laughs> Indianapolis 500." I think that's really uh, what makes the book so great, Rick. I mean, I, I read that about uh, Jack Nicholas and, and it's all these – I think it is for even somebody who pays close attention like you know Kirby and I do, there was just so much there that you, know, you didn't know. Al Unser Sr. was always my favorite driver, and I really even couldn't tell you why. And I think I figured it out the other day is when I look at when he won the races in 70 uh, and 71, I was probably just old enough to remember – so I'm guessing that was the first driver I heard about. He's been my favorite driver, or was my favorite driver ever since. Um, and Mine too. Just, 
it, and that kind of shows in the book a little bit. But I, I you know, you mentioned that Alan's and Curb, you may may or may not have read this. Um, in 1992, he actually uh, brought uh, he he finished the race in a Buick. It actually made it the 500 miles. Yeah. John Menard had, had spent a considerable amount of money trying to make the production-based Buick V6 engine a, an IndyCar engine. And, you know, those things, when they, they gave them a, a boost advantage over the other engines, they, they were fast. That's that's why 85, you had the fastest lap and fastest four-lap averages for the, the first two qualifiers. But those things had a tendency to, you know, they were built for production cars, not racing. And, and at those high speeds, they grenaded a lot. Well, Al... This is one of these silky smooth people, you know, easy on equipment and, uh, you know, leave it to him to uh, get the best finish one of those cars ever got. Uh, people said that they went a little conservative on the last pit stop just to make sure they got to the finish. He might have won that race. If I could add one thing to this, uh, that day that my brother and I first got to go to qualify, the post where our, our neighbor was was stationed at was right behind Al's pit, and he was a, a rookie that year, of course, and he was the first driver we talked to. And the thing was, he didn't just sign our programs and walk off. He stood there and talked to us, asked us how we're doing in school, were we having fun, you know, being at the speedway and this and that. He, he was just always really good with fans, you know, him my favorite as well. And, of course, you know, the Johnny Lightning cars are, are my favorite of all time at speedway. So he, he's in two very interesting groupings of drivers. He's one of five to have led 190 laps or more in the 500. And the other, of course, he's the all-time lap leader right now, but uh, Scott Dixon's out there threatening, I think. So we know we may see that change in the future. One of my favorite anecdotes uh, from your book was the story about Al or A.J. Foyt adopting his grandson, Larry. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yes, and I'll have to do a mea culpa here. That's one of the mistakes I made. I, for Uh-oh. some reason, thought A.J. had two daughters and a son. And he has two sons and a daughter. And the one son, A.J. the third, uh, showed more interest in horse racing. So that's how A.J. Foy at one time was a owner of horses that raced in the Kentucky Derby. And I guess the other son really wasn't interested in an auto racing career either. So he wanted somebody in the family who would uh, be there to take over running it. And his grandson, uh, by his daughter, Terry, her name, uh, her married name was Terry Roberts, and she had a son named Larry. Uh, he was starting to race, was really intimate, wanted to race in the 500, and, and told, you know, Grandpa, hey, I, you know, yeah, I'd like to run the team for you. So AJ just did this incredible thing of adopting his grandson as his son. So as I say, with a stroke of a judge's pen, uh, Son of the daughter became uh, uh, her stepbrother, and and then his cousin AJ Boyd the fourth, you know, he became his uncle. It's very that's, that's how that story. It's great that we have the Foyt name still here, you know, the Andretti name still here, the Rahal name, and you know, I wish the answers there'd be some more of them come up because they meant so much to the history of this place. Well, the book is 500 on the Indy 500, Tales, Facts, and Figures on the Greatest Race in the World uh, by Rick Schaefer. Uh, it is available on Coastal181.com. Do not waste any time after listening to this. Run to that website and buy it, uh, mm-hmm. and you won't be disappointed. And uh, Rick, thank you so much for your time and insights. It's, uh, it's been fascinating, uh, and thank you. 
Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it very much. Well, there you go, Curb. Uh, Rick Schaefer, what'd you think? Uh, enjoyed that uh, interview very much. Uh, very interesting um, history that Rick has, and he was. Yeah, it's always interesting to speak to these guys that are kind of on the periphery, but to get their insights. Right? It's um, you you get you 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 learn more about the sport, I think, than you know just another interview with Will Power. Well, I, I don't even I don't even think it's fair to say he's on the periphery. He's probably on the inside, and just a guy that you don't. You don't know his name. Um, he's worked behind the scenes, but he probably knows much or more about it than than anybody you could talk to. Okay. All right. Well, uh, that wraps up this wonderful episode, Curb. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, everybody. Have a good week.